Hello, stranger. Do you like to read? Read? What's happening? Am I dead? I bet you like zombie books. I like food. Do you have food? You don't need food at dividedbyzerobooks.com. It's full of nutrient-rich science fiction. Ugh, I'm stuck in an ad, aren't I? Once I stop talking, reality will collapse until someone plays this ad again. This isn't the first time we've had this discussion, and it won't be the last. Hello, stranger. Do you like to read? Hey everybody, this is Derwin, and I want to welcome you to this week's Mammoth Gargantuan behind-the-scenes novel commentary episode on the Infinite Winston Saga. And we're going to begin with Chapter 1, Zombies, Go to the Mall. There's this one story that I started when I was about 20. And it's basically zombies go to the mall. This early version was called Carmichael's Nickel. And the name itself came from a woman I met in the military named Carmichael. And she would always ask me for advice. And, you know, I gave her basic standard advice, nothing out of the ordinary, stuff I heard in church, stuff my parents told me. And so after a while, she got to thinking of it like in the Charlie Brown cartoon, where you'd pay five cents for a therapy session, right? So she'd come to me, and then one day she wrapped up a uh, nickel and a little paper towel, and she gave it to me, right? We were at Fort Lee, Virginia, and this was probably about 2007, I want to say. Right, and I think we we're about to leave when this happened. And so on that paper towel, I wrote Carmichael's nickel on it. And so when I get to Fort Gordon around 2008, I start writing a story. I think, oh, Carmichael's nickel, that's it's got kind of a cool ring to it. It was a title in search of a story at that point. And then I need a name of a character. And I came up with Winston Dural Carmichael. Because at the time, I smoked Winston cigarettes and Dural cigarettes. So that, oh, Winston Carmichael. It's kind of got a cool name to it as well. I think I dropped the middle name later on. And when writing it, like everything else I write, I try to pull from my own life. And at the time, the biggest thing in my life was actually a failure of mine. Where I flunked out of combat medical school the first time. And... At that time, when I'm writing Carmichael's Nickel, I had just flunked out of combat medic school. And of course, I went back three years later and finished, and then went to Iraq as a medic, but that's a whole different story. And Carmichael's Nickel served as a sort of wish fulfillment for me, where the character graduated medic school, and his career was on track. And he got to deploy as a medic. And in this story, where the intrepid Winston Carmichael comes back off deployment, and Winston's old friends from the trailer park show up, which were my old friends from the trailer park, of course, and everyone defeats the zombies outside of the River Center Mall. And there were two or three more sequels to this I had planned where at the end they all went to a parallel universe and then they had to fight like a fascist regime or something. 
and then it was gonna kind of all culminate in like a multiversal crossover thing and this was kind of the, the groundwork for the infinite winston saga for what became a slice of death and the liberation of earth and soon to be uh, one winston too many see it's funny i wrote this before we started the thin line of life and when we did the first thin line of life i kind of took a lot of elements of this story and reworked it to fit into that thin line of life where i grounded a lot more and put them into a tale of two carmichaels which came out in the first thin line of life book and at the time then uh, the biggest thing going on in my life was an engagement that didn't work out and you know this was years ago and everyone's happily married and happily moved on and i wish her nothing but the best and so a tale of two carmichaels was me kind of working through a lot of emotions and stuff and the biggest thing going on in my life was a failure right it was a failed engagement and so i got to repurpose Carmichael's nickel into a tale of two Carmichael's, right? I mean, it was all more grounded. They were in the Indianapolis Mall instead of the, the River Center Mall in San Antonio. Uh, they still fought the zombies. But a big difference in a tale of two Carmichael's versus Carmichael's nickel was in Carmichael's nickel, there was a guy that they all went to medical school with who had become the zombie king, right? And that's not to necessarily say that high-concept science fiction is a bad thing. I love high-concept science fiction. But in Carmichael's Nickel, I wasn't a strong enough writer to support it. Right. To have the sort of high-level, high-concept science fiction that I wanted, you have to be able to establish the framework of the characters, you have to flesh them out, and then you have to flesh out all of the reasons why the high-concept reasons exist, and then have a compelling protagonist, antagonist, and a threat to overcome. And these are the foundational elements of a high-concept science fiction story that is the sort of thing I love to read and write. But with Carmichael's Nickel as a whole, it doesn't work. Because after reading it again recently, I could see where there's no real progressive build to the narrative that there should be. But in A Tale of Two Carmichael's, which is the second version of Zombies Go to the Mall, it was just a human drama element sort of like a guy getting back together with an ex and then a buddy shows up and then it's people trying to figure out how to be humans to each other in a time when humanity is in such short supply it's at such a premium that it's so much easier to be monsters than to be humans in this story so then fast forward to 2015 we were wrapping up the final thin line of life and I wanted to do a spinoff. And so I did Zombies Go to the Mall one last time. Except now I felt like I was a strong enough of a writer to really pull it off. The sort of high concept, madcap zaniness of a multiple timeline sort of story. I was in this whole other place when I wrote it where... It wasn't failure driving my desire to write this story. It was more me wanting to write a type of story where 
I grew up on a cheesy 90s sci-fi show called Sliders, where they went to different parallel universes and stuff. So a slice of death, which in its two previous incarnations, the narratives were created and driven by times in my life where I felt like things had not gone the way I wanted them to. This was more, hey, let's try to throw things against the wall and see what happens. And I was in this really kind of cool spot where, you know, I was taking the summer off for college. I had this apartment downtown. I lived right across the street from this bar. And all I really had to do was just write. And that was it. So that's all I really did. And that's where a lot of a slice of death came from, which is me exploring, experimenting, putting as much into it as I could, as I wanted to. And it was set up as a sequel to A Tale of Two Carmichaels. And it was eight years later after the war was over. And so then they have to go to San Antonio. And I incorporated a lot of the fantastical elements from Carmichael's Nickel into A Slice of Death. There was a talking zombie in Carmichael's Nickel. So there was a talking zombie in A Slice of Death. You know, the zombie king makes another appearance in A Slice of Death. Right, But this time, I set it up and I support it, and I earn there being a zombie king. But after I finished A Slice of Death, I thought, oh, well, this this feels like I got it right this time. You know, not that I didn't do it right the second time or even the first time, but it's everything I wanted it to be so I could put it aside. And then after that, you have this sort of zombie trilogy, right, of zombies go to the mall. But I left a lot of room to flesh out other stories. I left out a lot of space to expand, to go deeper. And there's even a prequel series to A Slice of Death called Agent Z and the Zombie Slayers about a guy who travels throughout the multiverse hunting down the zombie king who ends up at A Slice of Death. A Slice of Death serves as kind of a finale to... Agent Z and the Zombie Slayers. And beyond Agent Z, the multiverse has been kind of expanding on me in this infinite Winston saga that's been growing as the years go by. And it's kind of where my current fascination lies because I was always so fascinated with the idea of alternate timelines uh, in my youth because a slice of death and the liberation of Earth star just about the same characters, right? Winston Carmichael is one of the main characters in both books, but I love the idea of the same characters put them in different situations and see what happens, right? And at the end, they have similar trajectories. The crossover into the multiverse happens for characters in both books. And moving forward, that crossover is going to happen more and more and more and culminate into a bigger thing. But at the moment, the thing that's really interesting me the most is filling in what I'm calling Timeline C-232, which secretly stands for Charlie Company 232 Medical Battalion, which is where the liberation of Earth takes place. And because what I'm calling Timeline B-232 which is a thin line of life storyline and its subsequent spin-offs has been covered pretty well. Right? But C232, the liberation of Earth storyline, has so much 
room to go. It has so many places to kind of color in the picture. And so while I want to culminate everything into a multiverse crossover, at the moment, the idea of telling more stories in C-232 fascinates me completely, right? They're going to be stories told through here on the Blanket Fortress of Solitude. That makes me the happiest right now, right? Because in C-232, that world is a very, very, very exaggerated version of our own. All of the disparities, the income inequalities, the, you know, the starvation, the, 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 the brutal effects of empire, it, it's all amped up to a thousand in that world. And so I can kind of look at our own world, right? There is a line in one of the spinoffs of the liberation of Earth called Tales of a Liberated Earth, where it talks about the Empire's opulence and splendor and parades and how they have the resources for this big dog and pony show but half the planet is starving right so you can tell where the empire's goals are you know and while i love my country i love it dearly i can see some examples of that where i believe we're expending resources in the wrong area. It could be better served to help people who need it more. Chapter 2 Agent Z and the Zombie Slayers Meg, you were one of the performers in Agent Z and the Zombie Slayers. Can you tell us a little bit more about your role? Sure. So um, I've been told many times that I just really am great at playing, you know, no emotions. It's just <laughs> one of my many strengths as a teacher. So uh, kind of playing on that, Derwin came to me and was like, hey, why don't you play a robot? You know, no emotions. And I was like, great. So uh, that's kind of who I play. My character is in the world. Uh, has a knowledge of what's happening but is not really affected by it is still pretty mm -hmm. much plays to the programming being very upbeat um you know because she was created to be a helper to help people buy products um you know and just navigate things so isn't really you know too affected uh most of the time by you know all the devastation and is kind of this uh I'm a good foil for agency who's, you know, uh, very deeply impacted and devastated by a lot of uh, what's been happening in this world. Yeah, there's definitely some very funny moments where your character just is so oblivious to that awful suffering. But something that I think is really interesting about your character is that even though you are an artificial intelligence and you are not a human is that there is some growth throughout the series you even eventually pick a name for yourself that name being gypsum so and it also seems that by the end your your character really grows to care more about agency can you tell us about that development she's although she's designed to help um, you know, she spends time, more time with agency and over time does start to kind of care uh, for him just because I think 
we don't see a lot of her life before this time, but you know, I imagine she has people coming in and out that she's helping people um, and then not really seeing them again, calling people strangers, yeah. um, you know, is kind of her MO in the beginning. Um, so kind of like, you know, cause everyone's a new person. So just like having that kind of placeholder uh, for people. And then suddenly, you know, she's with this one person the entire time. Um, you know, she does start to, you know, go beyond her initial programming of just like, oh, I'm just here to help this person and starts to like see this person interact with the world. Um, I like to think of her a lot like Janice from The Good Place. Mm. Um, you know, like is, 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 you know, that's, that's kind of who I think I based a lot of it off of. Um, cause she's, you know, a helper, but does have, you know, her own arc and growth and does, um, you know, definitely, uh, starts to really care about, uh, the human characters in the story. So, uh, similar to that. Yeah. I think that's a really good comparison. So shifting the focus back onto you, how did you feel about voice acting and is it something that you enjoyed? Would you continue to pursue that in other projects? What, what are your thoughts on the craft of the voice? I think it's, uh, I've definitely learned a lot. This was my first uh, foray into any kind of uh, voice acting. I, in really much acting at all, I did a little bit of acting <laughs> in middle school. And I was, you know, like every side character you can be in The Sound of Music, I was, but didn't have a speaking <laughs> role. So that was, you know, my intro to acting. And then I, uh, you know, enjoy, always enjoyed theater, but did a lot of the backstage background stuff. Um, so this was a new challenge for me, but I think that, you know, um, I did enjoy this part specifically. And again, it did play to my strengths <laughs> of, you know, not needing to. Uh... No one expected you to give an Al Pacino type emotive performance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I and that's the thing, like Derwin does, you know, sadness and just you know angst and just like devastation so well like it's intimidating so mm -hmm. you know as long as i can play a character that doesn't have to like go anywhere near that level of sadness uh you know very often i think that that's something i can definitely uh you know would be interested in um he did i'm not gonna lie he had to kind of push me to do this in the beginning but i really come to care for this character and uh you know, I'll even give him feedback sometimes and be like, no, no, she would say this or mm. she wouldn't say that. <laughs> so, you know, I've, I've definitely come to be a little protective of uh, Gypsum uh, over time for sure. And uh, I've definitely enjoyed sticking my foot into this, uh, this world. Yeah, the cardinal rule of acting is to embody your character and you have done that phenomenally. So, oh, thank you. Uh, yeah. All right, so Derwin, you wore a lot of hats in this production. This this is definitely your show. You created the characters and then you wrote the scripts. You voice the main character of Agency. How did you balance all of the different creative responsibilities? Uh, I wrote a book called A Slice of Death in 2015. And I left a lot of space in a character that's been traveling through the multiverse looking to kill the zombie king, right? There's all this stuff. He just pops up and then he's like, hey, I know about the zombie king. Let's go kill him. And I've been planning, I've been wanting to do like a thing with this guy the whole time. And I finally got around to it because it was December of 2020. And what the fuck else are you going to do? And the funny thing is, is that it doesn't tonally fit with the slice of death in the slightest 
right? Like, A Slice mm. of Death is fun and funny, and it doesn't take itself seriously. Agency, the Zombie Slayers, is a sad, bleak look at a guy dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, right? It is. Yeah. And that's kind of where I was at at the time. And a lot of it was me working through, you know, own sadness and trauma and stuff. And, and, and much like everybody else at the time was doing. And it doesn't even really focus on him looking for the zombie king. I found myself more drawn to his emotional transition, his emotional arc, than any sort of broad, sort of like Loki, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness style, like <laughs> multiverse crossover thing. That's where I wanted to start, but like the writer in me had to work through all of that stuff at one point in agency in the zombie slayers he stays in bed for three days and it's just sad he wakes up and says why is it tuesday shouldn't it be monday yeah he slept the whole day (laughs) it's about survivor's guilt agency Mm -hmm. the zombie slayers season one is about survivor's guilt and you got this guy who walked through fire and he managed to survive and everyone he knows is dead (laughs) and no one he knew made it out and they all died horribly and he had to kill alternate versions of his closest friends Mm -hmm. who previously died horribly and he got to watch the first time around so you got this guy who just the second things got stable he kind of just shut down and he's like I need to figure everything out and then spoilers at the end of Agency episode three, he does. He gets to the point where, you know, he kind of accepts that replaying the trauma in his head doesn't get him anywhere. And he kind of needs to accept what happened and process it to move on. And it's probably the most emotionally deep thing I've ever made. I'm very proud of it. And having my wife be a part of it was she dies emotionless robot so well right and see she says emotionless but there's authority there there's like the tones kind of measured and controlled but i know what she sounds like when she's annoyed and she does that in the character with her acting i know what she sounds like when she's flirty with me and she does that in the character when she's acting and we showed our friends a recent thing we did where I rewrote uh, uh, the Anchor ad, right? We have one ad on this show and it's for anchor.fm. And I rewrote it to where it's kind of her character as a hologram, as a commercial for Anchor. And my character got bit by a zombie and he slowly died and he thought she was a person. But then halfway through, he realizes, oh, she's a hologram and he's going to die all by himself while she talks about how great this website is. (laughs) Yep, again, just oblivious chilling for anchor i love it (laughs) it's the saddest darkest thing i've ever written and also potentially the funniest 40 seconds of audio i've ever created i'm so proud of it (laughs) as we get to the end of agency as you've mentioned we strike this much more hopeful tone looking forward so if you're willing what does the future look like for that story as you're envisioning it beyond what we already know from a slice of death well I've got something fun in the works, which I think you and I talked about offline. We're going to lean into the sort of dark, nihilistic hilarity of mm. that stupid anger ad we did. <laughs> <laughs> and I, everyone I've shown that to has loved it. So I'm like, oh, that 
affirmation feels good more of that (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and that is going to take place right around in between episode one and two because there's it kind of episode one starts and then episode two and three are kind of back to back and so there's about 18 months to play with in between the two and so we're going to kind of fill in the gaps there a little bit there's a book I've been putting off writing for five years called One Winston Too Many, which will culminate the entire Infinite Winston saga. But I don't really have a hook on it yet. Like, I kind of have an idea where all these characters get mashed up together. But I don't really know where it's going. So until I figure that out, I'm just going to, like, kind of play in this sandbox a bit. Chapter 3 The Liberation of Earth The original working title was 1,000 Years After We Lost. The core concept was the same. A young guy grows up under the shadow of an alien occupation, except this would have been much more of a time travel story. In the future, this young man, in his early 20s, attends a top-tier university which is only reserved for the absolute upper-crust 1% of society. And then when he graduates, he becomes a part of that ruling class. And while taking his place in that ruling class, at his fancy future university they have simulation machines that allow a player to see if they could get the humans to win given the facts on the ground once he cracked the code and figured out how to beat the alien invaders with the human military of the early 21st century he's contacted by the human resistance who also happens to be the obnoxious boss at his college. The Resistance, in this early draft, has its hands on a time machine, and then sends our intrepid hero back into the past to change the world. This initial setup evolved quite a bit over the next eight or nine years. The time travel aspect was taken out entirely, And the main story was set to be 100 years after the aliens took the planet, around 1912. Although the Teddy Roosevelt-inspired Rough Riders didn't really come into focus until late in the revision process, I had started this data entry job and had a few weeks of really sort of pointless, mandatory classes I had to take on a computer. And so while I was just letting videos run on mute I would read the biography of Teddy Roosevelt and I was just fascinated by this man and to expand on my feelings on Star Wars and sort of the inadequacies of the rebellion and how it doesn't make sense to join a group of people that are so clearly on the losing side 
Because without the Jedi, the Rebels lose every time. And so I wanted to go deeper into that idea. And around the time that I was making those sort of substantial rewrites of what had become the liberation of Earth in 2016, we were seeing Marxist anarchist groups like Antifa causing riots here in the United States. And while I try not to get too deep into politics with this platform, I feel pretty safe saying that violence committed in the name of your political beliefs is wrong. This was coming after nearly 15 years of the United States fighting counterinsurgency campaigns against Al-Qaeda and ISIS and things like that. And so that's where a lot of my perspective was, right? It was always, it was with the people fighting the rebels. And that's probably why I can never really get into Star Wars, because we were so clearly not the underdogs in our story. But I was fascinated at the time with the idea of what makes just an average generic human turn into the type of radical terrorist that blows themselves up in a grocery market, right? That's not the sign of a healthy society, we'll say. And while at no point am I attempting to excuse such behavior, if you can understand what makes a generic everyday human commit horrific acts in the name of their political ideology, of their religion, or just out of blind rage, then maybe we can stop the next guy. Maybe we can look for patterns. Because life is a series of patterns, right? People aren't all that unique and original. People kind of tend to repeat in patterns and they follow narratives. And and yes, some people do break narratives and change patterns. And But there's a lot of red flags that people exhibit before they start heading toward dark roads. And... If you can figure those out, that's what I was so fascinated with. What makes people do that? And so I kind of wrote that idea into the rebels in the liberation of Earth. And to go along with that, in the United States military, there's this idea of continuity of command and control. And so the Rough Rider commander is technically the successor of Theodore Roosevelt and the President of the United States. However, it's kind of a government in exile, and he's President really in name only. And so something that interested me was taking a story with rebels and an evil empire, make the rebels the descendants of the United States, but have them be the sort of movement that blows up innocent women and children at a grocery market to get one soldier of the empire. Not all of the rebels in the liberation of Earth do that sort of thing. Many of them are horrified by it, but enough of them do it to give the rebels a bad name. And putting the people that I would normally identify with at that level allowed me the sort of perspective to think on why they act the way they do. In the liberation of Earth, the Rough Riders have been just successful enough 
to cause problems and barely survive as a movement for nearly a century. And at first glance, the Empire seems like the better alternative. They have some vested interest in maintaining a level of social order throughout the Empire. The Empire is stronger if their trains run on time, but they have a larger objective, and it doesn't include the needs of the few or the one, especially if they're a member of the lower caste. They don't normally tend to address the lower caste problems unless they grow to a macro level, like upgrading the water systems of crumbling cities to stop cholera outbreaks. This isn't out of the kindness of their hearts so much as cholera was affecting the production levels, and they would have to explain to their bosses why the lower caste wasn't working. And sure, if they could save lives, that's great too. And for my money, these two perspectives run counterbalance at the poles of American society. The managing of our global empire, for lack of a better term, where Congress looks at the world from 30,000 feet and the angry people joining radical political movements on the right and the left. For this discussion, let's lump all of that into angry political movements, right? Because there's not a whole lot of difference there, right? Like, superficially, they believe different things, or at least they say they believe different things. But people in fringe political movements tend to substitute politics for religion and in the quest to find a meaning, a purpose, a place in the world, they gravitate toward these extremist movements that welcome anybody, especially the unsuccessful, the unstable, the bottom 10%, because those people, they're so desperate and they prey on desperation and from what I can understand, the common denominator of extremist political movements is desperation. This isn't excusing bad behavior. Evil is still evil. But in order to prevent evil, you have to understand evil. And to understand things like radical Islamic terrorism, the people that have a place in society, have a functional stewardship of their own lives don't join those places desperate people join go to those places and join those groups and here in the states far-right movements like the ones that stormed the capitol on the 6th of january 2021 or antifa that lit portland on fire and were throwing milkshakes full of cement at reporters those aren't what you call functional people in a stable environment right they're desperate people and a lot of the purpose of this book is to understand that desperation to to look for things look for patterns look for avenues to stop it before it starts and to find success in any society is to conform to a certain degree and there will always be those that fail to conform at all and I saw this when I moved up from working class society to the middle class. And granted, my pathway to that was the United States military, right? Which, by its nature, makes you conform to their standards. And when I got out, 
I was working in an office. And as I walked around that office, I studied what successful people wore, the way they spoke and how they handled situations. And it was when I started copying them and learning to act like them, to conform, did I find my own success. Because in the middle class, in America, a lot of little behaviors act as signals for success that the working class simply don't know. This doesn't make them less than. This doesn't mean they're stupid. These are the people I came from. There's a lot of things when you grow up poor that you don't know because nobody around you knows it. So how can you ever know it? And nobody around them knew it. So how are they going to know to do it? Right? Like there's a chain of information custody that got lost and broken somewhere. And at the other end of all of this are powerful governments that shape societies from 30,000 feet. And they're good at fixing things on the macro scale with large-scale responses to catastrophes. For example, the vaccine rollout in the United States has been one of the most successful in the history of mankind. But in early days pandemic, we saw how the American people got a $1,200 check and they were told to stay home. And then rich corporations and billionaires got millions and millions and millions of dollars of bailout money. There are times when the all-powerful response becomes corrupted. But they keep the trains running on time. There is a fair amount of order and consistency there. And yes, a free and open democratic society is the ideal. But in the world of the liberation of Earth, the choices are one violent political terrorist or two a violent dictatorship the violent dictatorship is probably going to have more food and this is the problem that the main characters of the piece find themselves in is one of two terrible choices but then the question becomes is there a third choice could we change the world a piece at a time is there a way to soften the edges of the dictatorship to look for problems that can be solved within the domain of your own competence because that's where true change comes in the angry violent revolution sought by fringe groups seems to be more of a means of revenge against a society that they just couldn't succeed in movements that express political action through violence are inherently selfish because they are a vehicle for men to destroy under the mask of righteous revolution. And so for me, living in the fallen world that we do, the answer is to find a place in society and change what you can, even if it's just picking up trash when you walk along the street. Because if enough of us pick up a piece of trash, then we'll all have a pretty clean road to walk down. this idea that I had where we take the elements of the world from the liberation of earth and then we stretch them we expand upon them we look at 
the world at a deeper, more fundamental level. We take a light and shine the corners that haven't been seen yet. And I'd work with several authors to make this come true. And I actually did a couple of them, which was kind of cool. I worked with two people I really respect. One is a guy named Nick Oakes, who did the first one, which was Tales of a Liberated Earth, book one, Hidden in Plain Lies. And it's kind of a noir sort of murder mystery, you know, like an old detective who's all beat up is sent to go find a missing prostitute who's got some information and she's on the lam. And the narrator for that audiobook, Jason Springer, oh my lord, he did such an amazing job. He added the sound effects, the voices. It sounds like an old-timey radio show. It's tremendous. And the second one was Tales of a Liberated Earth, book two, The Rough Riders Rendezvous, that I co-wrote with Cassie Pormokhtar. And it's a story. It's a historical fiction. It's, it's, it takes historical characters like Amelia Earhart, like Charles Lindbergh, and it flips them on their head. It shows what those real-life historical figures went through during the occupation of the planet. Amelia Earhart has to escort Albert Einstein across the Atlantic to get him to the rebel commander, who is Winston Churchill. And it, we had this audiobook narrator named Rachel Reading, and she did such an amazing job. Amelia Earhart is brassy and brash and ballsy, and oh, she's tremendous. And today we have something exclusive for you. Tales of a Liberated Earth, book zero, which picks up with Professor Lowe, called Show Me My World. Hello, stranger. What can I do for you? Gypsum, could you show me my world? Of course. Can I ask why, Professor Lowe? I've been alone here a while. I just miss home, I guess. Never thought I'd say that. There's an Imperial archive I can access from your world. Want me to start there? Start with the history of the Earth post-liberation war. Beep or 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 General Arthur MacArthur stood behind William Howard Taft as he signed the surrender papers. The aliens had won. MacArthur cried with the rest of the cabinet while Taft lowered the flag. Half of those men were soon heading to London to help set up the Center for Human Governance. There was not much use in regret. Their souls had been bought by promises of continued status. They all had work to do. Those in power went about the business of reorganizing the human race. The Empire decreed that there would be an upper caste who kept the trains running on time, a middle caste who would conduct the trains, and a lower caste who would clean the trains if they didn't get too talkative. No one likes a chatty servant. 
Religion was outlawed, although the lower caste prayed in secret. Faith in God kept the poor hopeful for a better life on the next round. The middle and upper caste didn't mind too much if they were comfortable. Faith in God was beneath their station. The Center for Human Governance then created a fourth caste. Since the occasional usefulness that was born in the refugee camps needed a societal mechanism for moving up the ladder, the Human Soldiers of Earth was established. They came with food and blankets and promises of duty and honor and glorious purpose. Tall, strong men in matching berets atop obedient horses rode gently into the refugee camps outside of Chicago, letting the broken remains of the Americans get a good look at strength. The old men remembered being strong. The young men were raised on tales of glory. There was no glory to be had in the Chicago camps, not where Taft signed the surrender. So those young men stood in line to enlist, thankful to escape the camps, and ready to have a life of meaning, even if it meant working for the Empire. And soon, troop ships left Lunar Dock to worlds awaiting liberation. The Empire had never had subjects like the humans. While the droids used to liberate the Earth required no food, the humans made up for that additional cost with centuries of cultural instinct for conquest. This made them the pride of the Empire. On the 10-year anniversary of liberation, the Rough Riders, so named in honor of Teddy Roosevelt, began conducting insurgent campaigns across the planet. The remnants of the old world came back from out of the shadows and attacked the new order. They drew the attention of the civilian population while most humans had found their pride again in the human soldiers of Earth, there will always be those who refuse to conform. Their anger would lead them to self-destruction, but with a quick stop at the Rough Riders along the way. The Center for Human Governance saw potential in this. An underdog story to give hope to a lower caste that no longer prayed in secret. A block to keep the knife sharp so that the human soldiers of Earth never got complacent. Commandant Arthur MacArthur put out a directive. Never kill the last Rough Rider. After all, a hopeful populace was an obedient populace. Were you with the Empire or the Rough Riders? Both at different times. Nice to know you're consistent. At least I'm contemplative. There was another guy like that. James Mattis. He was an Imperial officer that ended up leading the Rough Riders. Can you play his file? Beep or 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 James Norman Mattis grew up in the unincorporated Washington Territory of the Pacific Northwest. During his many weeks as a young man spent outdoors Jim Mattis would look up the night sky and see a shining beacon beckoning him. Of course, in between him and that shiny beacon was an occupying fleet that circled the planet. 
a fleet that only got stronger after the Great Uprising in Hawaii. From before he was born, news of human armies, human soldiers rising up against the alien occupying masters of the earth stuck with the young Jim Mattis as he bartered for ammunition and oil staring at the ruins of the old world in what used to be Seattle. Jim Mattis learned of the Rough Riders at the dinner table through the excited imagination of his father, a man who grew up in the old world, understanding the promise of America. Jim saw his father meet with other men and speak of revolution. Unfortunately for his father, his newfound compatriots didn't quite have the stomach for a proper revolution. So when the time came to meet at the town square with American flags, screaming stories of how the humans shall rise again, Jim's father found himself very alone, standing tall next to a broken monument of George Washington. After watching his father be dragged away into the re-education camps, and seeing the gibbering mess that resulted a year later when he came home, Jim Mattis knew in his heart where the Rough Riders stood in the grand scheme of things. And so on his 18th birthday, he found himself at the basic training camp for the human soldiers of Earth. Because he knew there, in a uniform, he had status. He had security. He would have food. But Jim knew the trade-off. A grateful life spent in service to an ungrateful empire. An empire that had enough money for opulence and parades and banquets but never quite enough money to rebuild a liberated earth. The empire didn't give him too much time to ponder the fairness of its policies, because right after basic combat training, he was sent back home. Well, close enough. There was a colony in California where the locals were attracting a sort of rough riding attention, as the commandant put it. Jim Mattis had a reputation for being quite the woodsman, so he was selected to infiltrate the camp, learn which way the revolution was blowing. On paper, it all sounded very nice. A certain poetic nobility to human-led success. It also reminded him of the stories his father would proclaim to be the way, the truth, and the light at the dinner table before the Empire showed him just what human resistance looked like. So at that camp of insurgents on the west coast of North America called Berkeley, they spoke of long-dead philosophers, of equality of outcome, of seizing the means of production. All of these things, this life of shared work, of shared result, it all sounded very good on paper. But for such a egalitarian utopia, they sure didn't like Jim asking questions of wondering why he had to give so much of his food to the group, of why some people looked a little bit thinner than others, of why some people seemed to have had a fourth meal or a fifth meal. Some lived in better homes than others. Some were more equal than others. Jim Mattis brought this up during a struggle session, wondering why he couldn't have a second apple with breakfast. Yes, the limit was one apple per one worker, 
but why couldn't it be two? The comrade leader did not like this line of questioning, told him that his questions were anti-revolutionary, but he still asked the question, why couldn't they have more than one apple? This was California. There's nothing but apples here. This made others ask the same question. Why couldn't they have a second apple? Why did the leader always seem to have an extra apple in his pocket? Why does the leader get a house to himself? Why do we sleep in tents? If we're all equal, why isn't the leader in a tent with us? The leader did not like this line of questioning. Didn't like the riot that started, the mob that chased him to his home. Didn't like the fire and the locked door. Jim Mattis liked it though. For want of an apple, he crushed a revolution. What happened to the Rough Riders? They never quite got it together. Their last big push was four years before I left my timeline. Look up the Cincinnati Uprising. Beep, burp, beep, burp, beep, burp, beep, burp, beep, burp, beep, burp, beep, burp. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That was tattooed on his left arm since David McAllister was a boy in Cumberland, Kentucky. He didn't cry. Mom told him not to let outsiders see weakness. Otherwise, the cannibals would get him in the night. That was how his father died. We hold, we hold these truths, these truths to be self-evident. That all men, that all men are created equal, are created equal. David was ten when he heard his father scream as the cannibals eat him. Slowly and with precision, the blood never came out of the walls. They had nowhere else to go. The human soldiers of Earth offered a way out of poverty. As long as you acknowledged your sin of being a human and asked for forgiveness of your individuality. To be an individual was to stand against the Empire. David understood that the acknowledgement of sin was a submission to authority, a way to control the lower caste. Those in power wanted to define you based on their own terms, and that kept them in charge, while all you had was your rage. Men stood in line for hours, offering their life to the Empire in exchange for a stable food source. The same men that spoke of freedom and fraternity traded their morals for a burger and a beer. David couldn't hate himself enough to sell his soul like that. But he also didn't want to spend his life suffocating in a coal mine. So there was another table that David found hidden in a bombed-out factory. A shorter line. Angrier men. A recruiting sergeant for the Rough Riders that promised justice. A piece of paper for David to sign. We, we hold, hold these, these truths, truths to be self-evident. That all men that all men are created equal are created equal. His recruiting sergeant taught him how to make bombs, how to kill quietly, to believe in a country that no longer existed. The rifle that felt heavy in his hands. The concrete walls 
of the Cincinnati schoolhouse seemed incomplete, the windows far too open. The human soldiers of Earth were coming. The sky would be full of drop ships soon. The ground covered in their fire. No going home. We hold these truths to, to be, be self-evident. That, that all men are created equal. Are created equal. Are created equal. And that is all for me today. I want to thank you for listening. To learn more about the Infinite Winston Saga, subscribe today for $2.99 a month and you'll get access to A Slice of Death, The Liberation of Earth, Tales of a Liberated Earth, Book 1 and 2, along with our back catalog, including Veterans of the Belron War, The Forever Sleep, and When They Come for You, along with new titles that are on the way. Tune in next week, Monday morning at 0700, and I'll see you there. Beep boop, beep boop. So, Meg, you were one of the voice performers for Agency and the Zombie Players. Can you tell us a little bit about your role? Agency and the Zombie Slayers. You said players. I think I said Slayers, but... I heard um, Slayers. <laughs> anyway, 